Father, you are the king of this kingdom and you have appointed Jesus to have the name that is above all names, that at his name every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and every tongue confess that he is Lord. We look forward to that day when all the earth will indeed acknowledge that he is king. But today we acknowledge that. And we bow our knees and we confess with our tongues, Jesus, that you are Lord, that you are the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And we do not yet see the kingdoms of this world under your leadership and authority, but here in this church and in churches around the world, we want your kingship to be evident so that the world might see the distinction between the kingdoms of this world and the kingdom of our God and of his Messiah. Jesus, you have promised in Isaiah 51 that you will put your words in our mouths. And so today as we speak words, may they not be of human origin, but may through the power of your spirit, may you, Jesus, speak to us today. And in our singing and in our prayers and our preaching and our communion, Lord God, may you remove uh, the human element of our weakness and our finiteness and our sinfulness. And would you, Lord Jesus, speak words of truth and of love and of hope and of power. Would you call people by name that they may come and join your kingdom? May your spirit speak words of conviction, of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. God, we cannot do this in our own power, but it is your hand that hides us in the shelter of the rock. It is your words that are the hammer that break the rock into pieces. And so God, would you do this for the name and the sake of your glory in this world. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. There are almost 200 countries in this world, each one of them seeking to establish their own place, to fight for their own kingdom, to get their own way. North Korea, and Kim Jong-un have walled themselves off from the rest of the world and are seeking to become a nuclear power against all opposition. China and Xi Jinping are exercising their economic and military might. Iran and Ayatollah Khomeini are seeking to establish Shia Muslim dominance in the Middle East in Iraq, Syria, Lebanon, and beyond. Russia and Vladimir Putin are reasserting themselves on the stage of world politics, annexing Crimea, battling in Syria, and seeking to influence elections and activities around the world. America and Donald Trump have stated publicly that he is working for what's in America's best interest in all these situations, not interested in the other kingdoms of the world, but in the kingdom of America. North Korea, China, Iran, Russia, America. These are what the Bible refers to as the kingdoms of this world. King Jong, Kim Jong-un, Xi Jinping, Ayatollah Khomeini, Vladimir Putin, Donald Trump. This is what the Bible refers to as the kings of these kingdoms. Now, none of those people use that title. 
And some of them, like Donald Trump, do not have the same unilateral power that kings in the past have. But when the Bible refers to the kings of this earth, it is talking about the leaders of state, the heads of the political entities, the heads of the kingdoms of this world. And of course, kings and kingdoms are nothing new. They've existed throughout human history. The kingdom of Japan, Germany, the Prussian Empire, the Ottoman Empire, the British Empire, the Mongols, the Arabs, the Roman Empire, the Persian Empire, the Greek Empire, the Babylonian Empire, the Assyrian Kingdom, the Egyptian Kingdom. Kings like Adolf Hitler, like Queen Elizabeth I, like Napoleon Bonaparte, like Peter the Great, like Augustus Caesar, like Akbar, like Saladin, like Genghis Khan, like Alexander the Great, like Darius, like Nebuchadnezzar, like Pharaoh. Throughout human history, it's the story of kings and kingdoms. They dominate our experience in this world and throughout all of human history. There have been and will be kings and kingdoms. And it's into this reality that 2,000 years ago, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, stepped onto the scene in Galilee and spoke his first words according to the Gospel of Mark. We want to look at those first words this morning. So please, if you will, would you take a Bible and turn to the Gospel of Mark? If you don't have a Bible, there's one in the rack in front of you, and it should look something like this. If you take one of these church Bibles and turn to page 812, you will be in the Gospel of Mark chapter 1. We're looking this morning in the Gospel of Mark. We've talked in previous weeks in preparation for this week. We've talked about the fact that the Gospel of Mark is about the good news. And the good news is that Jesus is coming to baptize people in the Holy Spirit, meaning to pour out in a flood of goodness God's presence, his power, his love, his joy, his authority, his assurance, his protection into our lives. Not a little sprinkle, but a flood of God's goodness in our life. We talked last week about how the fact that John the Baptist came preparing the way for Jesus, the one who would baptize in the Holy Spirit, and that Jesus came on the scene and he himself, in obedience, was baptized was led into the wilderness where he experienced trials and difficulties and temptations just like you've experienced or are experiencing, just like I'm experiencing, he experienced on our behalf. And now in Mark chapter 1, we hear Jesus utter his first words. Of course, these are not his first words in life. These are not even his first words in the Bible. But for Mark... These are the first words that Jesus speaks to introduce the story that Mark is going to tell us about Jesus. And first words are important. 
So listen to how Jesus speaks into this situation. Verse 14, Mark chapter 1. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God, and here come the words. This is the first thing he speaks. The time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Mark introduces these first words of Jesus with the phrase that he was proclaiming, the good news. The word for good news is the word gospel. That's the same word. That's why we call this the gospel of Mark. This is Mark's accounting of the good news. The message that Jesus is bringing. Now, two weeks ago, we talked about the good news as being the fact that Jesus is going to come and baptize in the Holy Spirit, meaning pouring out God's presence in our lives. That is the good news. But there are other ways to look at the good news, and this morning Jesus is presenting a second lens through which we can look at this message. One message, the gospel. One declaration, the good news. From one perspective, it is the baptism in the Holy Spirit. From a second perspective, we have what Jesus is talking about here. Baptism in the Holy Spirit has to do with our individual experience of God's presence. Jesus is speaking here about the realm of human history. And what Jesus says is, here's the good news. The message of the gospel in its simplest form. The time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. What is the gospel? What is the good news? The time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. Now this is good news for a couple of reasons. Number one, it's good news because God has a kingdom. God has a kingdom. North Korea, that's a kingdom. Russia, that's a kingdom. Iran, that's a kingdom. China, that's a kingdom. America, that's a kingdom. The good news is, is that God has his own kingdom. And it's not America, and it's not China, and it's not Iran, and it's not Russia, and it's not North Korea. It's the kingdom of God. And if you look throughout human history and you look around the world today and you see kings and kingdoms and you see the absolute destruction and devastation and sin and oppression and slavery that human kings and human kingdoms have wrought on this world, the announcement that God, the God who is rich in compassion and love and mercy, the God who is powerful, the God who has created all things, the news that this God has a kingdom, that's good news. And so the first piece of this is that there is a kingdom whose king is not Vladimir Putin or Kim Jong-un or Donald Trump or Ayatollah Khomeini or Xi Jinping. There is a kingdom whose king is God. That's good news. There's a second part to this good news. 
And that is that this kingdom of God has come near. You see, if God had a kingdom, but you and I couldn't have anything to do with that kingdom, that's not good news. Not good news for us. If God had a kingdom, but it was inaccessible, if you could not be a citizen of that kingdom, if you could not experience power and life in that kingdom, if you could not live in that kingdom, that would not be good news. But the good news is not only does God have a kingdom, but that kingdom has come near. And Jesus says, the time has come. Now, to understand exactly the background that we have behind this, we need to do a little tour here of human history. So what I want you to do is I want you to turn with me in your Bibles because I want you to kind of get a feel for how we're going back in time. And I want you to turn to the book of Exodus chapter 19. The book of Exodus chapter 19, that's page 59 in the church Bibles. Exodus chapter 19, and what we're doing is we are turning back in time. So from the time of Jesus, as you're turning those pages, we're turning back about 13 centuries. So the 13th century roughly, B.C., meaning before Christ. So Mark is Christ, Jesus. We're turning back 13 centuries before the book of Mark. And where we are geopolitically is on the earth at that time. There is a kingdom, and there is an empire, and the dominant empire is Egypt. And its king is Pharaoh. And Pharaoh and Egypt are exercising their dominion and power in this world by oppressing in slavery the biological descendants of a man named Abraham, the children of Israel. And they are living in captivity and slavery, meaning forced labor, meaning abuse, meaning miscarriages of justices, meaning all sorts of misery and oppression. And in the midst of that misery and oppression, the children of Israel cry out for help. And God, the maker of heaven and earth, the all-powerful, God, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, hears the cry of the oppressed, and he raises up a man named Moses, a prophet, and he says to Moses, I want you to go and confront the king of all the earth, Pharaoh, and I want you to tell him to let my people go. Moses shows up and says to Pharaoh, there is a king greater than you. And his name is God, and he demands that you let his people go. And Pharaoh says, I'm king of the whole earth. This is my empire. These are my slaves. I will not let them go. And so Pharaoh picks a fight with the king of the universe. And God displays his great power, and through ten miraculous plagues, he breaks Pharaoh in two. And he demonstrates his overwhelming power until even Pharaoh, the king of kings, the lord of the earth at that time, has to acknowledge that God is God and Pharaoh is not. And Pharaoh says, go. Take these children of Israel and get out of here. And so Moses and the children of Israel leave 
They're not gone very long when Pharaoh hardens his heart. It's tough being the king of the whole world. It's hard not to be arrogant. And Pharaoh decides, who are these to leave my captivity? I want my slaves back. How dare they dishonor me? And he summons the chariots of Egypt. And with the vast army of Egypt against fleeing refugees who are leaving his country, he pursues them with all his military might backs them up against the Red Sea. They cannot go anywhere, and the slaughter is coming. The children of Israel lose faith and cry out to Moses, why would you do this to us? Yes, captivity was terrible, but at least we had our life. We would rather go back into slavery. And Moses says, your Father in heaven loves you too much to let you go back into slavery. Do not be afraid. Your God will fight for you today. The kingdom of this world will not be victorious. After today, you will not see the chariots of Egypt again. And the Red Sea, in an unprecedented miracle, God opened the waters of the Red Sea. The children of Israel passed through on dry ground. When the chariots of Egypt tried to follow, the king of the universe swallowed them up in the waters of the Red Sea. And the greatest power known to mankind at the time was absolutely annihilated. God brings the children of Israel to his mountain, Mount Sinai. And there in chapter 19, verse 4, he says, Moses, I've got a message I want you to share with these people. Look at it with me. Verse 4, you yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a what? Kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. This is the first mention in the scriptures of the idea that God has a kingdom. He says the whole earth is mine. And he's inviting the children of Israel to come be priests in his kingdom. This idea that humans could join God in the kingdom, his power and his authority. God offers them this choice. Exodus 19. Turn now to the book of Daniel chapter 2. So you've got to turn pages from right to left. And you're going to go to Daniel chapter 2 which in the church Bibles is page 721. While you're turning pages from right to left, we're moving now forward in time. So we're not yet back to the book of Mark, and that's why in the Bible we haven't gotten back yet to the New Testament. We've moved forward about 700 years. So from roughly 1300 B.C. to the 6th century B.C. or the 500s. Israel, the same group of people who in Exodus were offered the opportunity to be part of the kingdom of God, although verbally spoke the words that they wanted to, their hearts were not changed, and so they did not obey. And so after God continued to warn them and send them prophets to teach them and sent them kings to lead them, they still continued to wander in darkness until finally... God returns them to captivity. Although this time Egypt is not the world power, Babylon is. 
And so the children of Israel go into oppressive captivity in Babylon and its king, Nebuchadnezzar. During that time, God gives to Nebuchadnezzar, the king of the Babylonian Empire, a very unusual and vexing dream. So confused is Nebuchadnezzar by this dream that he summons the wise men of his kingdom and he says, you need to tell me what this dream means. And the wise men say, okay, great. You tell us the dream, we'll give you the meaning. Now Nebuchadnezzar's no fool. You don't get to be the king of kings on earth without being a, having some smarts. And so he says, no, no, you're just gonna tell me whatever you wanna make up because I pay your salary. He says, if you're really wise, if you really know what this dream means, you tell me first what the dream was and then tell me what it means. Now, for any wise man or astrologer or person with divination, this is the stuff that's just going to make your heart drop into your stomach. Who could do this? Who could know the details of a dream that has not been revealed? And so all of them with one voice complain and say, what you're asking is unreasonable. You don't say that to the king of kings. And so he just simply says, kill them all. Daniel who is one of the wise men, but different than the other wise men. He's actually a believer in the God of the universe, a descendant of Abraham. He says, hold on, before you kill everybody, you need to know there is a God in heaven who not only gives dreams, he gives the revelation of the interpretation of those dreams. And Daniel begs God, tell me, Lord, what did you give him in a dream? And God reveals it to him. And Daniel says to Nebuchadnezzar, Here's your dream. While you were asleep, you saw a gigantic statue in your dream. The head of that statue was gold. The shoulders and chest of that statue were silver. The hips and torso of that statue was bronze. The legs of that statue were iron. The feet of that statue was iron mixed with clay. And Daniel says, O King Nebuchadnezzar, while you were watching this great statue, a rock was cut out of the earth, but not by human hands. Meaning no one chiseled this rock out. There were no miners. It just simply formed itself by the hand of God. And this giant rock was hurled at the feet of the statue in your dream. And when that rock hit the feet of clay and iron, they crumpled beneath its power and the whole statue was obliterated and destroyed. And Daniel said, and while you were watching King Nebuchadnezzar in your dream, that rock grew to become a mighty mountain and it filled the whole earth. Well, at that point, Daniel had Nebuchadnezzar's attention. And in Daniel chapter 2, verse 36, we read, This was the dream, and now we will interpret it to the king. Your majesty, Nebuchadnezzar, you are the what? King of kings. Do you hear that? You are the supreme king on the earth at the time. The Babylonian empire is the dominant world empire, and Daniel is acknowledging that Nebuchadnezzar is used to being called the king of kings. But Daniel says, the God of heaven 
has given you dominion and power and might and glory. In your hands he has placed all mankind and the beasts of the field and the birds of the sky. Wherever they live, he had made you ruler over them all. You are that head of gold on that statue. After you, another kingdom will arise inferior to yours. This is the Persian Empire. It's future from this time, but Daniel, because he has a word from the Lord, is giving us a prophecy about the future, and every secular historian will acknowledge that after the Babylonian Empire comes the Persian Empire. Next, a third kingdom, one of bronze, will rule over the whole earth. Ask any secular historian what follows the Persian Empire is the Greek Empire of Alexander the Great. Finally, there will be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, for iron breaks and smashes everything, and as iron breaks things to pieces, so it will crush and break all the others. And everyone will acknowledge that after the Greek Empire comes the Roman Empire, which is what this is referring to. Jump down now to verse 44. In the time of those kings, meaning the Roman Empire, The God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it will itself endure forever. This is the meaning of the vision of the rock cut out of a mountain, but not by human hands, a rock that broke the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold to pieces. The great God has shown the king what will take place in the future. The dream is true and its interpretation is trustworthy. And Daniel tells us that thing that we had a hint of in Exodus chapter 19, that God has a kingdom, that he was inviting the children of Israel to come be part of that kingdom. Daniel is saying there will come a day in which God will establish a kingdom on this earth that will last forever and ever and ever, and that kingdom of God will smash and destroy all the kingdoms of the earth. Fast forward now to the book of Revelation. So keep turning pages from the right to the left all the way to the last book of the Bible. Revelation chapter 11. It's page 997. Now you may notice as we're turning pages from right to left, we've passed Mark. So in time, we've now gone past Mark, both to the fact that Revelation is written after the gospel of Mark, and the fact that Revelation is talking about a time that is future from the Gospel of Mark and even future from today. It's talking about what's in the future after 2017. And like Daniel, the Apostle John was given a vision of the future and he wrote that vision down. Revelation chapter 11, speaking of a time that's still yet to come. Verse 15 The seventh angel sounded his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven which said, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah, and he will reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who were seated on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was, Because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. 
The nations were angry and your wrath has come. The time has come for judging the dead and for rewarding your servants, the prophets, and your people who revere your name, both great and small, and for destroying those who destroy the earth. The book of Revelation is the story about how in the future the kingdom of God will smash all the kingdoms of the earth and that Jesus Christ will return from heaven and set up an everlasting kingdom. Those who do not believe will be utterly destroyed and those who do believe will reign with Jesus forever and ever in a kingdom that is full of peace and joy and power and love and fellowship. This is the arc of human history. An offer of a kingdom in Exodus, the prediction of the coming of that kingdom in Daniel, the revelation prophecy of the fulfillment of that promise. This is the arc of human history. And it's into this background that Jesus is speaking these words. So turn back to the Gospel of Mark. Back to Mark 1, back to page 8.12. It's in this context that Jesus says, the time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. He's saying... The rock that was cut out of the mountain but not by human hands, that rock has been hurled at the feet of the statue and the statue has begun to crumble. And that rock is now growing into a mighty mountain that will ultimately fill the whole earth. And the good news is this, the future kingdom of God that will reign over all things, it is possible, Jesus says, for you and I to become citizens of that kingdom now, today that we do not have to wait until Jesus returns again and sets up his kingdom for all things. He will fix all the stuff on this earth, but today Jesus is saying the good news is that kingdom, that kingdom that defeated Egypt, that kingdom that defeated Babylon, that kingdom that has smashed the Persian Empire and the Greek Empire and the Roman Empire, that kingdom that has overcome the Ottoman Empire and the Arab Empire and the Mongol Empire, that kingdom that will ultimately topple the kingdom of America and Russia and China and North Korea, that kingdom that will last forever and ever and ever, you and I can be members of that kingdom now. That when you go outside these doors, you are in the kingdom of America. But in this place, gathered here, you can be a part of the kingdom of God. And that wherever you go in this country or this world, you may be a citizen of America. You may be a citizen of China. You may be a citizen of Iran. But you can be a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of God. God's kingdom. How? Repent and believe the good news. Repent and believe the good news. What does that mean? 
Well, first of all, for those who are not yet Christians, meaning you are not yet citizens of the kingdom of God, you have not yet accepted that Jesus is the real King of kings and the Lord of lords. And whether you're following Donald Trump or Xi Jinping or uh, Kim Jong-un or yourself, you have not yet acknowledged that there is a king over all kings. What does it mean for you to repent and believe? There's a great story in the Gospel of Luke that just visualizes this perfectly. I'll put it up here on the screen for you. It actually comes at the strangest time. It's while Jesus, the King of Kings, the King of the universe, is hanging on a cross, dying. Next to him, there are two people on each side, thieves, who are being crucified with Jesus. It says, one of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Aren't you the king of the world? Aren't you the promised king of the kingdom of God? Save yourself and us. That's what kings are supposed to do, right? But the other criminal rebuked him. You see, the first one is like, hey, look. Okay, if Jesus is king, fine. What can he do for me? How can he take care of my problems? How can he get me out of whatever mess that I'm in? He's not interested in acknowledging that Jesus might be king. He's hoping, well, if he could happen to get us off this cross, then I can get back to my life the way it used to be. But look at this other one. The other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence? We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Repent. What does repent mean? It's what this thief does when he says, we are being punished justly. When he realizes that he's hanging on the cross, not just because Rome is an impressive empire, not just because his parents didn't do a good job raising him, not just because society tempted him to be a thief, not just because the economic system caused him to want to be a thief, not just because other people treated him poorly or he was bullied as a child or whatever it may be. When he realizes, I'm here suffering because of what I did, that's repentance. And when you and I are willing to acknowledge that the difficulties we're experiencing in life are not just the fault of our parents or our siblings or the people around us or the world in which we live or the repressive kingdoms of this world. Listen, that is the reason some of the problems that are happening. But when you and I acknowledge that we are contributing to that, that it is our sin, that we are being punished justly, that we are experiencing death and separation from God because we have chosen to disobey him. We have chosen to do our own thing. We have chosen not to love our neighbor. We have chosen not to love our enemies. When we acknowledge that, that we are being punished justly, that's what it means to repent. Well, what does it mean to believe? All this thief does is say, Jesus, can I be a citizen in your kingdom? Jesus, would you just remember me when you go into the kingdom? And Jesus says, congratulations, you're now a citizen. No naturalization process, no citizenship classes, no swearing in, no couple year trial period. What do you have to do to be a citizen of the kingdom of God? Repent and believe. 
acknowledge that you and I are the source of our own problems because of our sin, to stop thinking it's everybody else, even though they've played a role, but to realize I'm guilty. And that just simply to ask, Jesus, even though I'm guilty, could I still be a member of your kingdom? Now, what does that mean for you and I who are already Christians? The words Jesus is speaking to us today are the same. Repent and believe. Please, you're already a citizen of the kingdom of God if you've done this at some point in your past where you have acknowledged that you are a sinner and you've asked God to accept you in his kingdom. But the message is still the same, and this morning Jesus is reminding us, listen, You may be a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. You may be a citizen of the kingdom of God, but it's still possible that you and I as citizens of the kingdom of God have thought to ourselves that we're actually the king and he's not. And there is a need for us to be reminded again today, we joined his kingdom, he did not join our kingdom. That he is the king and we are not. And there are some of us here today who the king of the universe who will reign forever and ever is telling us to get some stuff out of our life. And there are some of us here today that the king of the universe is telling us we need to do. He is commanding us to obey and we are refusing to listen. And Jesus is saying, listen, repent and believe. I'm the king and you're not. And the point is, if you want to experience the blessings of the kingdom of God now and not just wait until heaven, if you want to experience the grace and the peace and the love, not as if all the suffering would go away, but if you want God's presence in your life, you and I need to repent of the ways that we've tried to be king and let him be the king. Obey him. Do what he tells you to do. He's king. You don't elect a king. He's the king. And some of us, and you know who I'm talking about, some of us are refusing to listen. And the encouragement is, look, look around this world. What kingdom do you want to be part of? America? There's good things happening. But do you not see how the wickedness and the evil is hollowing out this kingdom? Do you think this kingdom is going to last forever? Do you think this way of life is going to last for eternity? What kingdom do you want to be part of? China? Iran? Russia? North Korea? I mean, listen, you can say, well, what about Canada? Pick the kingdom. Where do you want to be? (laughs) God's saying there's only one kingdom that has as its king the sinless savior of the world who loved you so much that he died on a cross that you could have eternal life. There's only one kingdom in this world whose king has been raised from the dead and has been given all power and all authority to exercise on your behalf. There is only one kingdom in this world whose king has ascended to the right hand of the throne of God on high and who will return to make all things right on this earth. And the point is, if you're already a citizen of that kingdom, why not obey the king? Why not do what he tells you to do? Why not go share the gospel with the person he's telling you to share the gospel with? Why not let him into that area of your life you've been keeping him out of? Why not confess that sin you need to confess? If he's telling you to get busy doing the thing he's telling you to do, obey him. Repent and believe.